Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then he, that is Jesus, arose from there, that is the Galilee, and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And multitudes gathered to him again. And as he was accustomed, he taught them again. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate in the house. His disciples also asked him again about the same matter. So he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. We find ourselves in the 10th chapter of the book of Mark. And the chapter contains five requests. Five requests that people bring to the servant, Jesus. There is the request for an interpretation in verses 1 through 12. And there's a request for a benediction in verses 13 through 16. And there's a request for information in verses 17 through 31. And there is a request for a coronation in verses 32 through 45. And then there's a request for illumination in verses 46 through 52. People come to Jesus with questions. And I understand about that. I understand what it means to want to know about things. I understand what it means to have questions and to have answers. And it's been my experience that questions usually fall into two categories. Those that are asked sincerely and those that are asked insincerely. And Jesus begins with a question from religious leaders, Pharisees, but the question isn't sincere by any stretch of the imagination. And then a sincere question comes from the disciples in verses 10 through 12. And of course, it's the difficult subject of divorce. And the last time we were together, Jesus speaks about the subject of hell. And you remember how much fun that was. And now he brings up the subject of divorce. And the subject of divorce is complex and it is difficult. And the servant's teaching on divorce centers around four things. Number one, the debate of the Jews or the religious leaders concerning divorce. And the debate in the past as well as the present centers around the big question, under what circumstances should a couple call it quits? Under what circumstances can a man or a woman walk out of a relationship and say, we're done? 
I don't know that I can go on. And clearly, this is one of the most asked questions that's ever been asked. Under what circumstance can a man or a woman walk away from their marriage? The second issue centers around the decree of Moses found in verses 3 through 5. So when they're asked the question, when can I walk away from this marriage? Jesus doesn't answer the question with yes or no. Instead of saying, yes, you can, or no, you can't, he turns people back to the word of God. What does the Bible have to say over this important issue? And many pastors and teachers and counselors are deeply divided over what the Bible says about marriage and what the Bible says about divorce and what the Bible says about remarriage. And so you need to pray even now for me. That God will help me to present to you faithfully what the scriptures teach on these vital issues. And number three, we look at God's divine intention concerning marriage. In verses six through nine, Jesus reminds us that marriage is a sacred covenant designed by God between one man and one woman for life. Marriage is permanent. It's designed by God and divined by God. And then number four, Jesus reveals the direct implications for those who would follow Jesus in this most important issue of marriage. Commit to marriage. Don't divorce. Divorce commits a a sort of a killing fields for relationships. Many decades ago, there was a movie that was released and it was called the killing fields, and it had an emotional traumatic effect on me. It was the story of a post-Vietnam Southeast Asia where the Khmer Rouge and the Cambodians were killing literally tens of thousands of people. And there's a scene in the movie where a journalist is wading through a rice paddy. And as this journalist is making his way through the rice paddy, he stumbles upon... A dead body. And then another dead body. And then a partially decomposed body. And then another one. And another one. And then hundreds of them. And then thousands of them. And then tens of thousands of dead bodies piled on top of one another. And the endless bodies were a testimony to the utter depravity that the human heart is capable of when it's left unchecked and like a killing field. Many of us try to hide and bury our failed relationships only to find ourselves tripping over dead men's bones. And we have to choose life. We have to choose God's way. We have to choose God's heart on this issue of marriage and we have to choose God's heart on this issue. And so the debate of the Jews concerning divorce begins in verse one. Look what it says. Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan and multitudes gathered to him again. And as he was accustomed, he taught them again. You'll remember Jesus's ministry is one of imparting the word of God and the word of life. He's imparting instruction. He is in the Galilee in chapter nine. 
He travels southward and eastward to Perea. This is the district that is on the east side of the Jordan River in the area that was known as the Decapolis. And this was an area that was populated by Gentiles and Jews. This particular portion of Jesus's ministry has been called the Perean ministry. And it will continue from verse one all the way to verse forty five. But Jesus goes from the Galilee into the Decapolis again, into the region of Perea, and there he is hounded by the religious leaders like a pack of dogs, like a pack of wolves. The Pharisees attempt to trap Jesus with an explosive question. And this is the area that was under the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas. The Pharisees in verse 2 came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Note what the text says. Testing him. The construction of the text seems to indicate that they asked him and they kept asking him. It was like a presidential candidate being prodded. Tell me what your position is. Tell me what your position is. Tell me what your position is. In Matthew's gospel in chapter 19 verse 3 we read, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now you'll remember, those of you who are familiar with the New Testament, John the Baptist's Bold preaching over the unlawful divorce and marriage of Herod had resulted in the Baptist's imprisonment and eventual death. Are the religious leaders interested in settling a theological dispute? No. Not really. Are they testing him? Yes. Because no matter what answer Jesus gives, no matter what answer Jesus gives, he knows that he will alienate. He knows that he will aggravate. He knows that he will antagonize people. Just like now. Just like right now. That no matter what I say, and no matter how much sensitivity I use, somebody's going to be offended. Do you know what is not here? There's no deep concern for the pain and sorrow created when men and women fail to honor God or God's word. There's no hint of how to minister to a man or a woman whose life has been devastated and shattered over infidelity or disobedience to God. The religious leaders aren't looking for a way to help people in trouble. They're looking for a way to trip Jesus and trap Jesus. They're looking for a biblical reason to proceed with an unbiblical plan. They're looking for a way to terminate marriages. It was the Bishop Augustine who wrote, It is no advantage to be near the light if your eyes are closed and they're near Jesus, the light of the world. And do they want to see a way out? Do they want to see a way to help? Are they trying to negotiate the difficult minefield that is called life where people in rebellion and disobedience do unspeakable things to one another and lives are destroyed and marriages are destroyed? But they're not interested in that. 
And look what it says in verse 3. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? Jesus points them to the scriptures. And this becomes an important point. He doesn't say, oh, under these circumstances or those circumstances, yes, you can. No, you can't. He begins by pointing them to the scriptures. And this is the one place where many people refuse to begin the discussion. What does the Bible have to say? And you'll note they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and then to dismiss her. Now, it is true that Moses permitted a divorce. As a matter of fact, if you go to the beginning of your Bible and go past Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, to the book of Deuteronomy, and I know what some of you are thinking, Deuteronomy, whoever goes there. But in Deuteronomy chapter 24... Beginning in verse 1, we read, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies or who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she's been defiled. Filed, but that's an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving to you as an inheritance. It is true that Moses permitted the divorce. And you have to understand why. It was a merciful alternative to death. Do you remember what the grounds for divorce was in the Old Testament? If you commit adultery, the offended, the offending party is killed. That's what you do. In other words, the marriage doesn't end in divorce. It ends in the old Italian-fashioned way. I don't believe in divorce. You don't believe in divorce, but you believe in murder? Sure. But you see, this is part of the point. It's a merciful alternative to divorce. But you've got to understand something in that culture and that society when it came right down to the to to the prospect of putting the stone in the person's hand and tossing the stone and killing their spouse. They simply wouldn't do it. But in that culture and society, in order to terminate the marriage, all a person would have to do is say, I divorce you. I divorce you. I divorce you. And guess what? You're divorced. But in that culture and society, without a certificate of divorce, the woman is left unprepared and unprotected and is quite literally at the demands of the culture. And this might come as a shock to you and this might come as a as a surprise to you. But the 
passages on the subject of divorce were never put there in order to punish women who were being mistreated. The purpose of the passage isn't to punish women who are being mistreated. It's rather to protect women who are being mistreated. Because to be put out into a world and a culture where your past is suspect and your present is suspect, you can imagine that it is because of the hardness of their heart that Moses allows this to happen. And so when it says... There should be two things that you should note about this law. Only men could divorce their wives. Women could not divorce their husbands. And in the stipulation that Moses gives gives are the words for some uncleanness. When a man has taken a woman, married her, and, and it comes to pass that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. And this became the point in the Jewish society and in the culture of what constitutes uncleanness. Rabbi Hillel interpreted this to mean that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. But in the school of Rabbi Shimei, who happened to be a student of Hillel, they took a much more narrow view. Some uncleanness, according to Shimei, was a reference to some premarital sexual contact. Hence, Joseph could put Mary away because he suspects her of, of immoral sexual contact. If a newly married husband discovers his wife is not a virgin, he can terminate the relationship and put her away. Rabbi Akiba went so far as to allow divorce. If a man happened to be wandering through the marketplace and he sees this attractive girl and he goes, you're much more attractive than my wife. You're gone. You're here. Can you imagine? A man says, I think I'm going to trade you in on a new model. And that's exactly what was going on. In the school of Hillel, a man could divorce his wife if she talked in public. If she talked really loud in private. If she let her hair down in public. If she burnt the bagels. All of these could be grounds for divorce. And in the ancient society, women had few legal recourses. Women could be put away for any reason or no reason at all. Sound familiar? Women could not divorce their husbands. However, there seems to be some exceptions. Some scholars have dug deep. And they've discovered that in the first century A.D., during the time of Jesus, some women were allowed to divorce their husbands if they were If they contracted leprosy and that they would be hopefully hopelessly isolated from their families forever and ever because there was no cure for leprosy. If the husband worked at a job that rendered him in a perpetual state of unclean condition, this would be a leather tanner. It was forbidden to handle dead things and a dead carcass rendered you perpetually unclean. And so a woman could divorce her husband if he was rendered perpetually unclean. A husband, if he was found guilty of ravishing a virgin, the courts would sometimes allow the divorce to take place. And so there was a glut in the market. And in the first century, if you can imagine, because there was so much divorce going on that they had to regulate it with attorneys. 
The law of Moses did not give adultery as the grounds for divorce, since both adulterer and adulteress were killed in Deuteronomy 22:22 and in Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10. So whatever Moses means by some uncleanness was the big issue. And it couldn't have been adultery. It may have been meant some sort of sexual misconduct that fell short of actual adultery. And so you can imagine, they want to know, what does it mean? Because in the first century, marriages were in trouble. And in the second century, marriages were were in trouble. And by the way, in the 20th and the 21st centuries, our marriages in trouble. And they're in trouble for a lot of reasons, aren't they? But we have to remember that marriage was God's idea. Marriage is more than a social contract or a cultural contract. It's a divine covenant. And the blessings of marriage can easily be challenged by the curse of selfishness and greed and sin. There was an English observer who noted the condition of marriages in America. He said, I notice that America is still the land of the free. With your divorce rate so high, it's no wonder. His American companion said, America is also the home of the brave. Just look at the number of people still getting married. The United States Census Bureau provided the following statistics. 1920, one divorce in every seven marriages. 1940, one divorce in every six marriages. 1960, one divorce in every four marriages. 1972, one divorce in every three marriages. 1977, 2,176,000 marriage licenses were issued in the United States of America. 1,090,000 divorces were granted that same year. I want you to just imagine, just for a moment, if flights and marriages failed at the same rate. I want you to go to DIA, you're at the United counter, and you're trying to take a trip anywhere, and the chances are one in two that the flight is going to crash. How many of you are going to go? Oh, look at all the hands go up. The number one reason why people come to see counselors is because their marriage is in trouble. And you'd be shocked at what I hear. Well, if, if sexual immorality is the only grounds for divorce, but what if my wife sews me up between two sheets and takes a baseball bat and breaks all of my bones in my body? Is that grounds for divorce? No, but it's an indication your marriage is in trouble. <laughs> One comedian said, A husband was looking at the gas bills, talking to his wife, saying, We can no longer afford these suicide attempts. One woman expressed concern about her marriage. The pastor asked her, When did you know that your marriage was in trouble? And she goes, You know, right from the start, my husband wanted to be included in the marriage photos. Yeah, I got to tell you. That could be a red flag, huh? 
But failed marriage is, is no laughing matter. And I think many of you know that. We've deviated from God's plan and from God's blueprint. We've migrated from his plan and design. And many in our culture and some even in our church embrace a theology of physical attraction and emotional satisfaction as the true measures of what constitutes marriage. But guess what? We've either knowingly or unknowingly embraced a view that God above all things wants us to be happy. And that's not what the Bible says. God wants us to be obedient. Look what it says in verse 5. And Jesus answered and said to them, It's because of the hardness of your heart that he wrote you this precept. The word translated, the hardness of your heart, is one Greek word, sclerocardia. It's found only here and in the companion text in Matthew chapter 19, verse 8. According to the Greek scholars, Arndt and Gingrich, it's a biblical and it's an ecclesiastical term. It's not found in secular Greek. It's used... Because of its spiritual significance. And some of you are familiar with the term multiple sclerosis or scleroderma. Sclerosis was a hardening, an envelope around tissue that creates this bubble. And so sclero, cardia, was two words that would be used to combine together in order to point to this hardness of heart. Jesus points to the hardness of heart as the root cause for divorce. A marriage counselor who works in Los Angeles, who does mediation for the divorce courts, averages 10,000 cases a month. He says, number one reason for divorce, sexual problems in the relationship, money problems in the relationship, in-law problems in the relationship. He says the real reason, selfishness, selfishness. Jesus says, because of the hardness of your heart, the divorce decree was a cultural concession to protect the woman. Because men were finding any reason and no reason to dump and abandon the relationship. Literally thousands of women were left at the mercy of the circumstances that they found themselves in. As a matter of fact, Moses is making reference to a specific situation. The people weren't responsive to the word of God. The people weren't responsive to the plan of God. The people were unwilling to follow God's plan. And so the plan of Moses wasn't the first best. It was the second best. Just like now. Just like people who say. I don't want God's best. And so Jesus outlines the divine intention. Look at verse 6. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. Look at verse 7. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Verse 8. And the two shall become one flesh. And then so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Do you understand what's happening? Jesus goes beyond Deuteronomy chapter 24. He goes past 
Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. He goes right back to the beginning. He goes right back to the book of Genesis. He quotes Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 and verse 6. He quotes Genesis chapter 2 verse 21 through 25 and verse 7. He quotes Genesis chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 and verse 8. And before I continue, I just need to pause for just a moment and point something out to you. Jesus quotes the book of Genesis and Jesus believes the book of Genesis. Does that shock you? Does it surprise you or annoy you that this Jesus, who's the Lord of heaven and earth, the savior of all mankind, believed that Moses wrote the book of Genesis? Of Genesis, he and and so guess what? For all of those people who think that Genesis is a myth or a suggestion, put themselves at odds with Jesus. Jesus believed that God created human beings. Jesus believed that God created the male and female. Jesus believed that there was a real Adam and a real Eve. Why do I even have to mention this? Because Jesus reminds us that God's intention was for one man and one woman to be united in a spiritual, permanent bond. So when he says from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Every wedding that I do without exception. I'll quote this passage. The two shall become one. One groom said to me, which one? Are we going to be me or are we going to be her? I go, you didn't go through the marriage preparation class, did you? Jesus reminds us that God's intention was for one man and one woman to be united in a spiritual permanent bond that he designed marriage. Adam didn't have options. Can you imagine Adam going, okay, here's Eve and here's Sheila and here's Lisa. Girls, don't you ever wonder why God put Adam to sleep? He didn't want his input. Can you imagine Adam's going through this whole process of creating it? No, could you make her hair just a little bit darker? You know, I really like green eyes. A little more on top. A little less on the bottom. He doesn't do that. God knows what's going on. Adam can't go through this mindless occupation. Adam can't say, you know... Think of all of the women I could have had. Yeah, right. Neither Adam or Eve had to deal with failed relationship. Eve never had to listen to Adam's tall tales about his mother's cooking. And so marriage is defined by God and designed by God. Permanent, indissoluble. I use the illustration when I'm doing a wedding of here's a piece of paper and here's another piece of paper and the two pieces of paper are glued together and you can't separate the two without partially or permanently destroying both. Marriage is a covenant 
The two are no longer separate. It's a description of unity. It is a unity that is based on trust and respect and affection. John MacArthur says, and I quote, in other words, God didn't create a group of males and females who could pick and choose mates as it suited them. There were no spares or options. There was no provision or possibility for multiple or alternate spouses. There was one man and one woman in the beginning. And for that very reason, divorce and remarriage weren't an option. Marriage as God intended it required the total commitment and consecration of the man and the woman. Now it's me. In God's eyes, they become the total possession of each other. Each one in mind and spirit. Children are the perfect illustration. You remember that baby that came up when we did our baby dedication? That baby is all mom and all dad and all beautiful. And the baby is a special creation of God. To destroy a baby is to destroy the creation of God. And to destroy a marriage is to destroy the creation of God. And horrible as it is, and as shattering as it is, and as devastating as it is, adultery and betrayal doesn't sever a marriage. It just simply makes the person an adulterer. God's standard is high. Every marriage and every creation of God have one thing in common. That when you destroy it, you're destroying something precious. The Bible teaches that God instituted the covenant of marriage. And no matter how much pain and no matter how much pressure is based in our society as the culture begins to demand that marriage be redefined, it will still hold out the reality that it was created by God. It's the union of one man and one woman, not two men, not two women, not one man and three women, not two men, two women and whoever shows up for the party. And this is why Jesus says in verse 9, Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. I want you to understand in part what Jesus is doing. He steers the conversation away from the religious leaders' interpretation of the law back to the original intent of God's word. Marriage is sacred. He reminds the religious leaders this is God's divine intent. He, he, he doesn't deny the wisdom of God. He doesn't deny the, the statement that Moses has made because human beings have been caught in a cultural and a sinful trap. And I have to remind you, remind you, remind you that all of these passages were meant to protect women, not to punish them. But our culture has abandoned any pretense of God honoring or Bible honoring marriage. They read chapter 10, verse 9. Therefore, whatever God has joined together, let not man separate. And they laugh out loud. We live in a culture where people can divorce for any reason. Or no reason at all. Is it possible that a human being can wake up tomorrow morning, roll over, look at his husband or look at her wife? Other way around. 
or maybe not. And say, we're done. I'm done with you. I don't want to be married to you. We're done. If your husband or your wife says that, look them right in the eye and say, sweetie, we'll sleep on it one more night. And then do it again. And do it again. And do it again. Look what Jesus does as he's dealing with the direct implications for those who follow him. Remember, one was asked insincerely. There is no desire on the part of the religious leaders in order to heal human beings. Jesus, when he comes in the house, look what it says in verse 10. In the house, his disciples also asked him again. About the same matter. Now you have to understand something. The disciples are understandably confused by the encounter. The disciples ask for an explanation. Hey look. They they understood Rabbi Shimei. They understood Rabbi Hillel. And you would be making a huge mistake. If you thought that divorce wasn't prevalent in this particular century. They understood the stakes of marriage. Even then. And so in verse 11, it says, so he says to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Verse 12. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The divine implication for those who continue to marry and divorce and marry and divorce brings strong words from Jesus. Whoever divorces and marries another commits adultery against her. What does this mean? Because people sinfully disregard God's design, they create a culture of impurity. Adultery runs rampant. And remember, there are three things that a Jew would rather do than they would. He would rather die than do. A Jew will not eat something unclean. If you put a piece of bacon in front of him and say, eat the bacon or die, he goes, then kill me. Kill me right now. If he says, dishonor the Sabbath, he says, you might as well just kill me right now. If you say, commit adultery, he would say, just kill me right now. Remember, the stern words of Jesus are not what the religious leaders want to hear. And even his own disciples don't want to hear it. Divorce perpetuates adultery. And many Christians don't want to hear that God has a different standard and a higher standard than the world. Good news? People don't go to heaven because they stayed married. And people don't go to hell because they got a divorce. Do you know why people go to heaven? Because they have a right relationship with God in Christ. Do you know why they go to hell? Because they don't. I know for a lot of people, they wished it was the other way around. Look, look, I stayed married. What else do you want? But people don't go to heaven because they stayed married. And people... Don't go to hell because they got a divorce. 
If these were the only words of Jesus in the New Testament, it would be clear that divorce is forbidden in any and all circumstances. But in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, Jesus makes an exception with when a partner is guilty of sexual immorality, the offended partner is free to divorce their spouse and presumably to remarry. It says, and I say to you in Matthew 19, 9, whoever shall put away his wife, except it be for pornea. The word is sexual immorality. It's translated fornication and shall marry another Commits adultery and whoso marries her, which is put away, does commit adultery. But even in the exception, even in the exception, God's highest is repentance and forgiveness and restoration. Remember, there are three kinds of marriages in the world. There's a marriage between unbelievers. There's a marriage between believers. And there's a marriage between an unbeliever and a believer. If an unbeliever gets married and divorced, and an unbeliever gets married and divorced, and an unbeliever gets married and divorced, and married and divorced, and married and divorced, and married and divorced, where do they go when they die? Hell. Because they got married and divorced? When Jesus was at the, by the woman at the well, and she said, Hey, you've had five different husbands, and the guy you're living with is not your husband. See you in hell. Is that what he said? That's that's not what he said. Aren't you glad that having a failed relationship doesn't disqualify you from heaven? People go to heaven because they have a right relationship with God and Christ. And people go to hell because they don't. In the end... Those who divorce outside the exception, who disregard the Lord's command, run the risk of further hardening their heart. Remember, this is what it means to harden your heart. To harden your heart simply means to say, I don't care what Jesus says. And I don't care what the Bible says. And I certainly don't care what you say. Time doesn't allow me to elaborate on all that the Bible teaches about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. But let me just give you just some short things to think about before we close. Divorce is always the result of sin. But it isn't always a sin. Do you understand the difference? Divorce is always the result of sin. Do you remember what the Bible says? The soul that sins, it shall surely die. Is death a sin? Now, it's the consequence of sin. Let's all play crime scene investigator for just a moment. In front of my pulpit, there's a dead body. And there is a knife sticking out of the chest. And I say, detective, tell me what you think the cause of death is. Well, you know, my superficial evaluation at this point would seem to indicate that the person died from a a knife wound. And sure enough, we take the body and we haul it to the medical examiner. The medical examiner pulls out the knife, runs a toxicology screen, and discovers that this poor slob was poisoned. And somebody stuck a knife in his chest to make it look like he died of a knife wound. The divorces that you come across, is it always that simple? Almost always are there underlying things that have happened. Did you know that God got a divorce? Did you know that? In Jeremiah chapter 3, God himself got a divorce. 
Do you know why? Because of the rebellion and wickedness and disobedience of Judah. And he says, I'm giving you a bill of divorcement. If divorce were a sin, then God would be a sinner. Is God a sinner? He can't be a sinner. So divorce is always the consequence of sin, but isn't necessarily a sin in and of itself. Here's what we know. Marriage is a God-ordained institution. It's the first and most fundamental institution. It's a covenant and it's binding. It's a covenant of companionship. It's a place of true intimacy. It's supposed to conform us to the model of Christ and his church. And divorce, it always stems from sin. It's not necessarily sinful. It always breaks a marriage. And by the way, it always does. Divorce severs a marriage. Someone might say, I still feel married. Well, you're not if you're divorced. If a police officer pulls you over and says, show me your driver's license and registration, and you go, I don't have a license and I don't have registration, but any idiot can see that I can drive. Well, guess what? In the state of Colorado, you have to have a license. And you may be able to drive and you may act like a married person and you may think like a married person and you may feel like a married person. But divorce breaks a marriage. And it's never necessary among believers. If you love the Lord and your husband loves the Lord, if you love the Lord and your wife loves the Lord, you have all the resources necessary in order to make your marriage work. It's legitimate on the grounds of sexual sin. It's legitimate when an unbeliever wishes to divorce a believer. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, remember I said there's believers, there's unbelievers, there's a believer married to an unbeliever. And when an unbeliever comes to the believer and says, I've had it with you, I didn't sign on for this Bible thing, I didn't, un- I didn't sign on for this Jesus thing, I didn't sign up for the prayer thing and the heaven thing, I didn't sign up for all of this, I missed the drinking, I missed the drugs, I missed the porn, we're done. And the person walks out on you. Paul writes, let him go. Because God hasn't called you to bondage. But to peace. The scriptures are written not to punish women who have been taken advantage of, but to protect them. And divorce is not the unforgivable sin. It is not the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if any person's in Christ, they're a new creation. Behold, the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Does the Bible permit remarriage for the repentant guilty? Well, that question isn't answered in our text. But it's answered in the New Testament if you bother to read it. Do you realize that the New Testament is a book about how sinners can be forgiven. Even you. Even me. There are lots of questions left unanswered. But let me tell you the one thing that you should know. When there is sincere repentance and when there is confession of sin and when there is faith in Jesus Christ, there is hope. And there's also power. Power to live a new kind of life. 
And the future is as bright as the promises of God. In Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 34 it says, For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. If God can forgive their sin and remember their iniquity no more, don't you think he can do that for you? Can't he give you a new heart and a new life and a new start and a fresh future? This is more than just the answer to a theological question. This is a commitment to whether or not you're going to promote and propagate a culture of death or a culture of life. A culture of purity or a culture of impurity. A culture of hope or hopelessness. Pray. Pray that God will give you a heart to not just simply answer the theological question, but to ask and answer the question, how can God use me to represent God's heart in this matter of marriage, in this matter of divorce, in this matter of remarriage. If you want more information, find Jay Adams' book, Marriage, Divorce, Remarriage. If I had eight more hours, I would just simply read it to you. But I don't. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that there's forgiveness and love. We thank you, Lord, that the law isn't the final word. That grace and mercy is the final word. That a real Jesus cares about real people. He cares about the past. He cares about failed relationships. He cares about the person who finds himself or herself right now struggling with every ounce that's in them to save their marriage. And Lord, I pray for that man and I pray for that woman right now. I pray that you would give them an extraordinary outpouring of grace and mercy and love. Of wisdom and understanding. Of strength and courage. And I pray for the person who's failed miserably. And wonders whether or not there's a life for him or her. And Lord, I pray that you would flood their heart with the knowledge that right now, right at this very moment, there is grace, mercy, love, forgiveness, hope, and a future. That everything that's written in the Bible wasn't written to punish people, but to protect people. In Jesus' name, amen.